Hello and welcome to Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tapeheads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. Lindsay, we're heading on over to your VHS collection for today's episode. What did you pick out for us? Highlander. The 1986 uh, sort of fantasy classic, I guess you could say. I'd almost call it a cult classic, since it wasn't that successful upon its release. Yeah, and on rewatch, I'm not totally surprised. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. It's got some iconic images, and it's got some Queen in their soundtracks. So. Yeah, the, the Queen I had forgotten all about. I didn't really grow up with this movie, but... This is such a strange, fascinating, quirky, like, almost incomprehensible sci-fi fantasy movie. And the fact that Queen does all the songs on the soundtrack, like, at the peak of their popularity, kind of just makes it all the more bizarre. Yeah, it's really weird, especially when you're seeing these uh, scenes set in the 1500s in Scotland, but in the Highlands... And then there's just Queen playing in the background. Everybody looks like they belong in a hair band. Yeah, the the hair even in the scenes in the uh, 16th century Highlands, it seems like everyone is right out of the 80s with their hair, Uh, including one Sean Connery playing an Egyptian immortal. Egyptian Spanish immortal (laughs) with really interesting facial hair. Like, I think the facial hair was what they did to be like, okay, we can sell that he's from Spain. Juan Sanchez Villalobos Ramirez. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he didn't do anything to hide his accent. The casting in this boggles my mind because the name of the movie is Highlander. It's about an immortal man from the Scottish Highlands, you would think that the main actor would be Scottish, or at least doing like a passable Scottish accent, and you would think that you would hire Sean Connery to play a character who is Scottish, and neither of those things are true. Yeah, it's really odd, because the, the uh, because our lead, Connor McLeod, who also goes by Russell Nash in the 80s, is played by Christopher Lambert, who's a French actor, and he has... His accent is just kind of off throughout the whole film. He makes he makes an admirable attempt at doing a Scottish brogue. He has a French accent throughout the movie, yeah, I feel like. But he tries to trill his R's and do a little bit of that Scottishness to it. He he tries. I'd say his accent is better than Mel Gibson and Braveheart. I'll give it that much. But it's not or great. better or or better than Sean Connery as a Spaniard. I feel like Sean Connery isn't even trying to do an accent here. No, he here. doesn't give a shit. He's just doing he was whatever the, he wants. He was in his uh, post-James Bond all throughout the 80s and 90s and uh, 2000s up until his retirement. He didn't really care. Like, he'd come up to set, kind of phone it in and do his thing and still probably be the best thing in each movie that he did. He was really good in this. He filmed his entire part in seven days, by the way. Wow. And he had some action scenes that he would have had to go through choreography and stuff for. I assume a lot of that is a stunt double with the Sean Connery stuff. Oh, that's a good point. Like when they're up on the cliffs and there's the aerial photography. I do appreciate that they ended up addressing Christopher Lambert's accent. I guess I shouldn't be saying Lambert. It's probably Lambert, but anyway... 
I like that they address the actor's accent in one of the scenes where he's being interrogated with, by the police because they call out that he has a very odd accent and he just is like, oh, it's from everywhere. I mean, I think that that's how they kind of get away with this. I mean, Sean Connery has a Scottish brogue because he's currently living in Scotland, but he was originally from, he says at one point he's over 2,000 years old. Yeah, I guess that's kind of like people who go on vacation and then claim that they picked up the accent while they were there, even though it was two weeks. So I've got a question for you, Lindsay. Do you think you can describe the plot of the movie we just watched? I could attempt it. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna need some keywords in there like immortals, the quickening, the gift. God. So <laughs> or this, the prize, excuse me. So this was actually kind of hard to follow, even though I've seen it a few times, but admittedly I haven't seen it since I was in elementary school, which is a very long time ago. This is essentially the story of a man who in the sixteenth century discovers that he is an immortal and cannot die. People think he's some kind of weird, evil sorcerer, so they try to kill him. He has to run away and start a new life where he then meets old Sean Connery, who is also an immortal and teaches him how to experience the quickening, (laughs) which is where you are in tune with everything around you, I guess. I think that's it. I I also interpret the quickening to be that lightning storm that happens when an immortal gets his head cut off. Yeah, I guess so. And when you get his power. They also had that lightning happen in a scene where he wasn't cutting off anyone's head. No one's head was cut off and he was struck by lightning. Yeah, there's no consistency with that. So it's not super clear, but there there is a thing called the quickening, and he's able to experience it, and it seems like he's doing some kind of mind meld with a deer. Yeah. Maybe. Ultimately, it turns out that there are all these other immortals. One of them is evil and wants to kill off all the immortals so that he can be the last one remaining and get the gift, which is just that you have superpowers because you absorb all the other immortals and then you're extra quickened or something <laughs> even have offspring because a, a regular mortal can't have children mm-hmm. and that's one of the kind of key things yeah i think it's or is it the gift or the prize is that the prize what yeah. is the gift then uh, maybe the gift is something i just made <laughs> <laughs> okay then forget the gift It's one of those sort of world-building exercises where I feel like the entire length of the movie is explaining the rules of the world. And by the time you understand what everything is, I mean, they explain what the gift or they explain what the prize is in the last two minutes of the movie. And by the time you you basically understand the rules, the movie's over. Because they say multiple times there can only be one. But it's never really explained because it seems like, yes, they can ex- they can exist in the same space. So then is it just egos? But then it turns out there is something that you get for destroying everyone else. But it, it was hard to follow, not only because of all the random accents throughout the film, but the tape we have is not so great. So the audio quality was kind of shitty. And I, I guess this is one of the consequences of us doing VHS. And I think that this particular tape we have from 93 was just when the rights were sort of in a company that that was just kind of, you know, pumping out these popular movies in their library at very low quality tapes. Yeah, what made it 
also hard to follow was that a lot of the scenes take place at night and they had a ton of smoke machines going and then add to that the fact that we had kind of poor image quality so not only could we not really understand all of the dialogue but we couldn't really see everything that was happening even the scenes that take place during the day there's that 80s look i mean blade runner has this a lot where it's like even during the day the interiors are like no one turns on a light and yeah. all the blinds are closed and it's kind of smoky mm-hmm. and there's you know the the light that's pouring in is kind of obscuring what's happening it's I feel like it was kind of the go-to visual style if you for like fantasy and sci-fi movies of this time. And it sort of it works. It doesn't hold up very well on a tape that degrades, but for the, the for the effect they're looking for it kind of works. I think a lot of this movie's style comes from the director Russell Mulcahy. He was known for uh, doing a lot of music videos in the 80s, kind of, you know, kind of the birth of MTV and music videos and all of that and sort of the like fast cut style and like cutting to music like things that we kind of take for granted now but I think that that's why this movie was kind of revolutionary for its time was kind of that style that it had going for it. Yeah he did some pretty famous Duran Duran music videos after directing this he directed some Queen videos. Mm. And I think that that's where a lot of the movie's cult appeal comes from is that it's sort of like I mean, there's nothing else like this movie where it's, even though there's a lot of logic holes, it's sort of like a rock opera uh, with songs by Queen, who of course (laughs) has a huge uh, fan base, and it's set in 16th century Scotland, and it cuts between that uh, and modern day New York, and just so... 1985. Yeah, 1985 New York, and... It's just so bizarre, this movie. It's odd. The thing thing that's really weird and that I had a hard time with when I was watching it on this go-round was... Was that McLeod's character was actually kind of creepy? He doesn't feel like a hero. Although I guess that works because if you imagine somebody has been alive since the 16th century and it's now the 20th century, that's a really long time to be alive and watch people die around you and be very, very lonely. Assume the identities of children that died. Yeah. Like, that's how he managed to keep handing stuff down to himself and transition to a new life without being identified. Just really screwed up. You, you think that's okay, so that's probably going to mess with him over all of those centuries. There's an immortal like Sean Connery's character, Ramirez, who seems really well adjusted, even though he's been around for 2000 years. Maybe you need to get over that 1000 year hump to really be well adjusted. And also things change so much quicker now, it seems like. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess there's a debate going about that, but it it seems like it would be more difficult to, you know, go from the 16th century to the 20th century than... Mm -hmm. Some of the leaps that Sean Connery had to make. Yeah. I'm still thinking about how far back he went. I mean, he says Egyptian, but then he he said he was in Japan during the 7th century. Yeah. He's been all over the place. And I guess he was always traveling by boat through all this. I have no clue. It's unclear how he gets from place to place. Yeah, but he was married to a Japanese princess, so... 
Yeah, I love that part. <laughs> it's just like thrown in as if it's nothing. And it's like, I kind of doubt that. I really don't think you would have been able to marry that Japanese princess. It's difficult because I kind of just want the movie to be about Sean Connery's character, who's only in the movie for about 10 or 15 minutes of screen time. But yeah. He's so interesting. But the problem is I just don't think that there'd be much conflict because he's so well adjusted. Yeah, he seems to be just a kind of happy with his lot and that he's just kind of figured it out and i i think may, maybe you're right maybe uh mcleod just needs more time to figure it out but he's pretty disturbed and he's really creepy when he's trying to kind of hit on that uh our old sword specialist. Yeah. The sword specialist who works for the police department. I guess the setup is that she's a weapons specialist. And so she works with the police department, but her passion is in swords. Yeah. She has a book about swords that uh, McLeod has found reading. There are other things that I would be curious about. Like when they show him with her book, he's in what seems to be his apartment and it's really weird, but they don't let you see much of it. You don't get to actually explore where he, where he lives or anything or learn too much more about him and his lifestyle, which is a little bit disappointing. I agree. I mean, like his antique shop, that's such an interesting idea that this guy who's lived for hundreds of years yeah. has an antique shop. That's kind of the perfect cover for him to have all this old junk laying around. Uh-huh. I guess we're to presume that some of this stuff is just his own stuff. I assume that most of it is. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, I feel like he could just keep selling all of his old swords and stuff and make a living doing that. <laughs> I like how when he's talking about... What happened in 1783? And he's listing out the different events. And so she, the our sword specialist, Brenda, who's also a one of his love interests, because he's been alive for like 400 some years. She goes, oh, is that so? And he just goes, yes. <laughs> just really <laughs> intensely. Because it's, we're, as the audience, it's a little wink, wink, because we know he saw it himself. Yeah. The, the tone of this movie and his character reminds me a little bit of the original Terminator, which yeah. we've covered with Alec Purcell. There are a lot of hints of that, and then, it, like you had said before, there's a feel of Blade Runner a little yeah. bit. Like, it does remind me of other things, but it still feels very original. Like, I, I mentioned at first that I felt like McCloud felt a little bit like Reese from the Terminator, but uh -huh. he's also very... He doesn't say a whole lot. Whereas he also Reese seems is, like the Terminator. Yeah. Well, himself. I think that the uh, the amalgam to the Terminator in this is Clancy Brown's character, the Kurgan, who is his arch nemesis spanning for what seems like hundreds of years. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's the one who kills Sean Connery's character. He's just a nasty guy. And he's the nasty guy who has had his head partially severed. Yeah, he's, that's so creepy how he's got safety pins around the big yeah, scar on his Yeah, just kind of throat. holding him on. It's like he's nearly headless Nick, but in a much darker way. At times this movie feels like it's adapted from a series of fantasy novels. Yeah, it's sort of interrupted and choppy, and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't flow really smoothly. Again, kind of hard to follow. Where it felt like they had a, there was a lot of content that they just had to cut out for time or something. I know that there's a, a an expanded universe beyond this one film. I mean, there's 
comic books, there is a TV series, there's several sequels to this movie that I think were not particularly well received. I like this world, but I just don't know if I would want to spend a whole lot of time in it, because it's kind of, it's kind of yeah. just grim and crazy. I did think it was kind of funny when you compared it to Jet Li's The One. Oh, yeah. I, I saw a lot of that in it, for sure. Yeah, which, I mean, the one came later. Yeah. But... I'm sure it was inspired by this. Yeah, which, I mean, Jet Li is so much more fun than Christopher Lambert. Yeah, all that, no contest, yeah. I mean, what Jet Li can do with his physicality, I think, is... Yeah. You know, just as a physical performer, he's one of the greatest to ever live. Yeah, and I'm still... I just... The casting just seems odd to me, because Lambert is kind of flat, like, he has an emotional stoicism that works pretty well, but I just think that I would have been pulled in a lot more emotionally if it his part had been played by, say, Dennis Quaid. Yeah, you mentioned Dennis Quaid. I think I, think I keep thinking of Dennis Quaid because of Dragonheart. Oh, okay. Where he is also, it's, you know, historical fantasy-ish with uh, Sean Connery. I remember that movie. But I think that's why I keep thinking of Dennis Quaid. But I really do think that someone like him would have maybe had a little bit more fun in the role and also would have been less creepy and felt a little bit more like a hero. Dragonheart would be a great movie to have on this podcast. I love Dragonheart. And I never meet people that actually like it or have seen it. Oh, I remember. How do you forget a movie where there's a big CGI dragon with Sean Connery's voice? (laughs) I remember checking it out from the blockbuster. Oh. It's amazing to me. So this is the first R-rated film you've selected for the podcast, (laughs) in part because you don't cheat like I do and select movies that you discovered later in life. Yeah. This is a movie that you grew up with. I'm so curious, like, as a child, was the world of Highlander something that excited you and something you wanted to visit? I think as a kid, this idea of being an immor- like this badass immortal, you do- they're not really coming back to life. They just don't die in the first place. But the idea that you could live for centuries and battle all that time and, and just kind of, even as a young kid, I think the- that question of immortality and outliving the people that you love around you, because they do make a point of showing his, um, I guess, is she his second wife? Because his first wife betrays him and wants him to be killed. She's kind of a religious fanatic. Like yeah. She thinks that it's Satan that's causing him to yeah. not die. But even that kind of question of uh, how do you endure a life where he doesn't even get to choose to die. Like he, he doesn't even have an option. He just has to keep on living. And I think that sort of idea fascinated me, even though it was still kind of... Um, went over my head a little bit probably like the depth of that sort of question I think that kind of interested me especially I was really into Buffy and stuff as a kid (laughs) so I think that kind of played in as well I feel like most stories about immortality aren't really that fun it's like such a burden to be immortal yeah and there's a little bit of that too I mean he has to watch his his wife die of old Mm -hmm. age and he hasn't aged 
But I feel like overall this is a pretty light watch. I'm thinking especially of the opening of the movie where there's a wrestling match at Madison Square Garden. And he's in the parking garage and there's that huge sword fight with the British guy in the suit. Like, that's the most memorable part of the movie to me. It's also kind of funny because they don't even need to show the whole wrestling match. They just kind of show it for fun. I think it's like the thematics, like, oh, all these people are cheering for these people fighting, but that's my (laughs) life. That's why he's, like, stewing in his seat. Okay, one of the other weird things about this movie that I just remembered is our big bad guy, uh, played by Clancy Brown. The Kurgan. He has, there's this scene where he takes out a sort of metal case, like briefcase sort of thing that you would normally see a sniper rifle in. Yeah. But he has a dissembled sword. He's definitely playing on that trope. I thought that was pretty good. And it reminds me a lot of the Terminator when he's in his CD yeah. hotel room and he's putting together like his arsenal, but just a huge like... Braveheart sword. It's just so funny because it seems like this, I guess it was their attempt to create. I can't figure out when I see that if they're doing it sort of tongue in cheek or if they're doing it as very seriously, this is modern, this is updated, but he's still just piecing together this sword the way he would a rifle. I wonder if you have to use a sword to chop off another immortal's head. Could you not blow it off with a bazooka? I mean, I was thinking, like, couldn't these immortals just walk around with, like, sawed-off shotguns? I mean, it wouldn't be as cool. Like, it's cool to have these sword battles, but if you could just blow off one of their heads, would that be the same thing? But does it regrow if you don't use a sword, I guess? That's something that just goes unexplained. If only there was a whole series of books to further (laughs) expand upon this. I, I think that it's a little bit of both, the, the sword and the suitcase thing, because he has such a huge sword that there's no way he yeah. could conceal it unless he had, like, a golf bag or something. Yeah. And also just kind of fun that he is assembling this crazy sword. I just feel, wouldn't it uh, undermine the integrity of the sword and couldn't it fall apart because it's in pieces that can pop apart or you pop back think so. together? I mean, that sword that Sean Connery has that he passes on to McLeod, that's, I mean, that was made in, what, 600 BC by some Japanese swordsmith? Did he say 600 BC or did he, or I I guess CE now, common I think he said BC, didn't he? Well, in any event, it's a super old sword and it seems to be just fine. This seems like a newer sword, the one that he's able to disassemble. It seems like something that he's like... He's either built or had designed. I just remembered that Sean Connery said that Masamune himself made his sword, which doesn't really make sense if he's talking about the Masamune from, like, the 13th century-ish. Because then that doesn't line up with... He said 600-something, which I would think would be 600 CE. I thought it was the father of the Japanese princess that Sean Connery was well, married to. See, that's the other thing that was confusing. Because he said that he was married to the princess and her father made his sword. But then he dropped Masamune. So that's what doesn't really make sense to me. Okay, so we we looked up the Highlander wiki to get the down and dirty details oh, on yeah. Masamune, and it turns out 
Sean Connery claims that Masamune was the father of a Japanese princess who made him a sword in the 6th century. That doesn't work. And so I guess their claim to, to, to make up for the historical inaccuracy is that it, this is a fictional Masamune. Not the real historical one. Ah, uh, yeah. So why didn't they just like the historical a... Christ? <laughs> why didn't they just give him a fake name? I mean, I think that's just a mistake, and they didn't own it. Masamune lived in the 13th century. Yeah, 14th he, century. He's born in the 13th century-ish, like I guess circa 1200, according to Wikipedia, circa 1264 to 1343. Mm -hmm. So. I guess of all the logic gaps in this movie, that's not the one to get too hung up on. It is kind of funny, though. In hindsight, instead of just saying, ah, oh, I guess we got that wrong, whatever, it works in the movie. The point is there. They just said, oh, no, this is a fictional guy. <laughs> so, of course, this all comes down to a climactic duel between McLeod and Krugan on the roof of Silver Cup Studios in Queens. And it's a big, rainy, sparky sword fight. That's another thing about when two immortals fight. There's sparks that shoot off the swords. And apparently yeah. they accomplish that by hooking up a car battery <laughs> to both of the swords. Like the positive and negative ends. So it's, which sounds super dangerous. This does it, sound really dangerous. It looks really cool in action. Especially it, when they have water flowing all around them when they knock the water tower over. Yeah. But I, it gives the impression that they're wielding incredible strength as they th hurl these swords around. Wow. But um, after this long battle, McLeod is... In which Brenda saves herself. Yeah, she saves herself and she saves McLeod, which yeah. is pretty cool. She's tied to this massive neon sign that gets knocked over and she's screaming. And instead of waiting, she just climbs her way out of there and then... Ends up following them downstairs and saves his ass. So that was that was kind of refreshing. It was yeah. good to see a strong woman there. I mean, McLeod was too focused on the task at hand of, uh, you know, trying to behead the Krugan that he didn't really have time to save her. And not be beheaded himself. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess he's the last immortal at, by the end of the movie. It's a weird animated sequence of him having all of the... I, I'm assuming all of the immortal souls entering his body. I mean, they look like the ghosts of dogs <laughs> entering him, which poses <laughs> a lot of questions. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we learn through voiceover that he's received the prize, which... Uh, she didn't know about before. So he's now mortal, and he can have kids... And they go back to Scotland. But kind he's of... mortal with superpowers. Yeah, he can read people's thoughts. And uh, and I think that there's this idea that had Krugan won and got the prize, he would use this power for evil. Yeah. That he'd, like, the world would be plunged into a dark age. Because we've got a good... Well, he'd probably procreate all over the place. Yeah. Oh, and the most iconic thing about this movie we haven't even talked about is the catchphrase. There can be only one. You're supposed to shout that in an echo every time you chop off another immortal's head, I guess. There can be only one. Okay. It's, it's part of the long list of rules that comes with being an immortal. Arbitrary rules. Yeah. Can't fight in a church. Can't interfere. 
there's a gathering where you're, you're if you're one of the last few immortals you have to all gather in queens apparently yeah, and fight each yeah. other there's also we should mention this because hey pride week and also it's something that you commented while we were watching this there's also kind of this undertone or not not even really under that's just like present in the film of homophobia when you really think about this movie and what it is and while i was watching it today i kind of realized it's this sort of epic tale of masculinity and and like sense of male pride and power it's a lot of macho posturing exactly and that's kind of all of these immortals are men they can't procreate the only way that they can pass down their lineage is to kill off everybody else and then suddenly they can procreate so it's it's this weird complex sort of thing of masculine egos and it's interesting all this kind of homophobia throughout the movie given the fact that queen does the does the soundtrack you know yeah it's i mean i wonder what they feel about scenes like where the cop yeah where the cops accusing him of he was in the parking garage because he was there to get a blow job yeah or something it's it's very weird and it's... i think that that's, that's prevalent in a lot of 80s movies yeah i feel like certain directors managed to avoid it like you don't really see that in james cameron movies it's kind of weird because it's this acknowledgement of homosexuality and it existing where it was just ignored in cinema largely before that but it's just kind of interesting because you have homosexuality was sort of ignored in cinema and then at the time where they started to acknowledge homosexuality and existing then it became this sort of dangerous thing that undermined your uh, undermined your manhood and that's kind of how we're seeing it here they hadn't really gotten to the point of just it is what it is and you wonder how self-aware the movie is because the fact that it opens with a pro wrestling match which is like the peak yeah. of like fake machismo you know these guys in bright leotards like smashing against each other in front of crowds of screaming fans like you know how much are they really thinking about that probably not i mean i think it's sort of this unconscious expression of it possibly right like i don't think any the writers were sitting there going oh we need to put in this this slur here and then have this scene here to make sure everybody knows we're not into the gay stuff and it exists throughout the ages like there's this funny scene that i guess is uh sometime in like maybe the 18th or 19th century in england where these uh nobles are challenging mcleod to a duel like kind of a fencing match and of course he can't die and he's drunk and he just repeatedly gets lanced through and coming back up yeah and the servant of the nobleman keeps trying to give his his uh boss a kiss and is being pushed away and it's kind of like why is that detail even there of his boss being grossed out by his underling trying to kiss him i guess because it was the 80s and there was just you know it was the era of like andrew dice clay and just like extreme homophobia yeah it's an unfortunate color to this movie that really shouldn't have been there the last thing i want to talk about this is something that really like boggles my mind when i watch this movie is i think about the relationship of mcleod and ramirez they're both immortals who are friends and later we see mcleod has another friend who's an immortal Mm -hmm. this black gentleman who comes to queens for the gathering for like basically for all everyone to duel and to figure out who's going to be the one basically it's like how can you be friends with each other 
knowing that inevitably you'll have to cut this person's head off. I mean, you don't have to. Isn't that sort of like part of the deal? Is like you're if you're if you're an immortal, you're seeking the prize, and the only way you get that is by being the last one standing. Although, how they even know what the prize is? But I guess there's this mystical thing drawing them in. Yeah. But my thing is, I think there are only so many people in this world that can understand them. And for them, it's other immortals who have lived and seen all of the people they love die and all that stuff and kind of suffered over centuries. So is it sort of like being on Survivor where, you know, you're all competing against each other, but you kind of make friendships along the way? You know, but maybe the thing that just just occurred to me is what happens if other immortals are born? Well, can they be born? Because that's the thing that's not really like, Where do these people come from? Because they seem to be born at different periods in history. So then couldn't couldn't he lose his mortality suddenly if some other immortal is kind of independently born somewhere? That would be a great idea for a sequel or a uh, novel. I, I don't I remember. I wonder if that's ever covered. I don't remember what happens in the sequel. I actually don't remember it at all. I just remember there's a scene where they have Sean Connery with, holding a skull and it's a uh, sort of nod to Hamlet, but that's all I remember. It's interesting that McLeod's parentage is never brought up. We have no idea no. really where he came from or how these immortals come to be. Well, I mean, he sort of his parentage is brought up because he's a McLeod. Yeah, he he's of the clan of, and he's yeah. got cousins and things. They had the whole McLeod clan introduced early on, but they don't really point out who his direct parents are or anything like that. By the way, before we wrap things up here, no ads on the tape. I know. Although this is a this is a rare miss for you. I'm sure the next uh, children's movie that yeah. you pick. As we know, they have no shame in advertising unabashedly to children. All right. Well, that wraps up Highlander. This is the part of the show where we decide if we buy it, rent it, or tape over it. Lindsay, what do you think? Can I give two ratings? Yeah, you can, and then you have to pick one. There can be only one. Essentially, I feel like if this is a movie you've seen before, then maybe it's a rent it because it's interesting to revisit. But for the general (laughs) public, this is probably a tape over it because I don't think it does enough to be interesting. It's, It's really a tale of masculine egos and miscasting. So, uh, except, well, I mean, I guess the only one, no, I mean, even Sean, Sean Connery won me over, but he, like, why was he an Egyptian man with a Scottish <laughs> accent? I just don't really understand. And there are so many holes, it's kind of hard to follow. It's not bad, it's just maybe there's so many other movies in the world that you could watch. Maybe it's not worth it if you haven't already seen it. So I guess tape over it. I'm in the same boat. I'm going to give it a light tape over it. I think that there's a lot of interesting elements here. I think that the mythology is interesting, even if it doesn't make any sense, if you yeah. think about it for an extended period of time. But I think that it's a it's an interesting, like, mid-80s curio. It's and, definitely a time capsule yeah. with the... With the presence of Queen and everything. Yeah, the soundtrack's awesome. I think that the main villain and Sean Connery are a lot of fun. 
Uh, Christopher Lambert is miscast for sure. I think, and I think that he's fine in it, but I think if there'd been a better, if maybe a Dennis Quaid, (laughs) yeah, you're really pushing the Dennis Quaid. (laughs) I think that part of this movie, why it's lasted, uh, so long is that everything that came after it was worse. So it improved (laughs) in people's minds. I mean, from what I've heard, the second one, there's a lot of different cuts of it, but it's very, it's much worse (laughs) and it makes even less sense. Uh, And I've heard that they're like the third and fourth. Like as the series goes on, it just gets worse and worse. And it was just—I know that there's fans of the TV show, but I imagine that's not as good as the film. I don't know anything about the TV show. I think that this is as good as the mythology gets, and I don't think that bodes well for the rest (laughs) of the material. I don't know, but this is just kind of based on what I've heard. General guess. Don't, I, I hope there aren't any Highlander heads out there that are yeah. just chomping at the bit right <laughs> Probably now. Probably not. I was really surprised, though, because when the movie started and Queen started playing, I was super excited because I was oh, thinking, yeah. oh, man, this is going to be epic. This is going to be so much fun. And then as we were watching it, it was just kind of a drag. Yeah, it's... I was really excited. I was on board. I think it loses a lot of steam when Sean Connery dies for me. I think yeah. that last, you know, half or third of the movie is a little bit of a drag. It's like, we know that these two guys are going to face off. None of the peripheral characters are that interesting. Sorry, Brenda. but And that's the thing. Brenda has the potential to be pretty interesting, but they don't develop her. But they don't... Besides the Highlander, you don't really get a ton of character development of anybody. Yeah, there's so much going on here. It's just odd the things that they decided to kind of focus on. But yeah, I but I, I did enjoy a lot of it. But I'm just gonna give it a, give it a, the lightest of tape over it. Yeah, it's just if you don't have any memory of it, it might maybe is not worth revisiting. All right, Sean, what are we watching next time? Not Highlander two. Not Highlander 2. No, we are going to watch uh, what I think of as like just the perfect summer treat. Uh, One of my very favorite action movies with Keanu Reeves, Patrick Swayze, Gary Busey. Yes, I'm talking about Point Break. Whoa, I've never seen Point Break. I've only seen clips of Jean reenacting it with his friends. Yes, and and to you, I'll I'll tell people more about that on the Point Break episode proper. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song "Mandatory Groove." You can hear more of Will's music at SoundCloud.com/slash/Gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes at TapeHeadsPodcast.com. You can also email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time.